Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we'll be talking about a war that changed the course of American history and defined a nation. Tens of thousands served in the Army. Great battles were fought. Heroes were born of the conflict. It was the deadliest war in American history for the number of soldiers engaged. Acts of bravery and tragedy were recorded in newspapers, books, and paintings. Names like Grant, Lee, Scott, Taylor, Bragg, and Davis were etched into the annals of American military history. Many veterans became leaders in civilian life, some even using their military fame to gain the presidency. But this is not the American Civil War. From 1846 to 1848, the United States waged a war against Mexico. In a year and a half, the United States fought across northern and central Mexico to the halls of the Montezumas, finally capturing Mexico City. A treaty was signed that brought 500,000 square miles of territory into the possession of the United States, and for the first time, the United States became a truly continental nation. Yet despite these outcomes that so favored the United States, it can be said that the Mexican War's most significant outcome was the American Civil War. That war, fought a dozen years later, superseded the Mexican War as the most significant event of the 19th century, and as a result, the Mexican War was largely forgotten. The two events, however, are tightly bound to one another. Joining me in the discussion today is my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, Professor of History at Community, uh, Columbia State Community College, along with Dr. Timothy Johnson, Professor of History at Lipscomb University in Nashville. Dr. Johnson is the author of several books on the U.S.-Mexican War, including A Gallant Little Army, The Mexico City Campaign, published by the University of Kansas Press in 2007, and most recently, For Duty and Honor, Tennessee's Mexican War Experience, published in 2018 by University of Tennessee Press. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. So the U.S.-Mexican War is perhaps the least known war in American military history. Dr. Johnson, what got you interested in the topic? Well, I think I, I first became interested uh, as a result of the first book that I did uh, 25 years ago, which was a biography of Winfield Scott. And Scott, when, when people think of Winfield Scott, they think of that old, you know, 75-year-old, 300-pound general from the Civil War, uh, the beginning of the Civil War, when he was definitely past his prime. But in my uh, work on Scott, I was really fascinated with his earlier life, his early career, War of 1812, uh, Mexican War, and he was one of the principal commanders. You mentioned his name just a moment ago when you were uh, naming some of the uh, generals who fought in Mexico, and I became fascinated with his uh, Mexico City campaign, and that sort of began uh, uh, my interest in the war, and one book led to the next, which led to the next, etc. <laughs> Despite concerns about Things like illegal immigration today, I, I think relations are somewhat strained uh, between Mexico and the United States. But for most of our lifetimes, Mexico has been a major ally to the United States. What happened in the 1840s that prompted a shooting war between our two countries? Well, the problem really began 
uh, with Texas. The Texas Revolution was a decade earlier, and uh, when Texas claimed its independence and won its independence, um, Mexico never really recognized Texas' independence. And so in 1845, when the United States annexed Texas, that was a, a major source of contention. And, and also there had for a long time been a border dispute along the Rio Grande. Where's the true border between Mexico and the United States? And, uh, and, and so there were uh, occasional um, um, incursions back and forth across the, the border. But, but the conflict began with one of these uh, military um, uh, events along the Rio Grande when Zachary Taylor's army was, uh, was stationed there. So, so the United States recognizes the Rio Grande as the southern boundary of Texas. That, and, and Texas herself, if I remember correctly, as an independent country at this point in time, also recognized the that, Rio Grande. That's correct. But uh, Mexico but disagrees. Mexico claimed that the boundary was the Nueces River, uh, the mouth of the Nueces, about 100 miles north of the Rio Grande, and so there was a considerable amount of disputed land there. Both countries are claiming them. That's correct. So the president at this time, of course, is a, a local guy here, uh, James K. Polk, uh, and, and so this Texas issue has been brewing for a, a time, even before Polk gains the White House, but by the time he becomes president, it's sort of all coming coming to a head. Uh, uh, Texas is, is ready to be annexed to the United States. Much of the groundwork has been laid already, I believe. That's right. Uh, uh, and, and so uh, to defend the southern boundary of, of Texas as the United States sees it, James K. Polk sends a military force under Zachary Taylor. What do we know about Taylor at this point? Um, well, Taylor had been in the Army for a long time. He had actually um, served in the War of 1812. Uh, Taylor was a Louisiana planter, slave owner, uh, Kentucky also. He had, he had lived in both states. Um, Zachary Taylor was uh, a really down-to-earth sort of soldier's general. He was the kind of general who would, would come up and, and slap a, a private on the back and ask, them, ask him how he was doing and where he was from. And so uh, the soldiers loved him. Uh, Old Rough and Ready was uh, his nickname because he was... Uh, Kind of rough around the edges. He was not. Um, he was not extremely educated, but boy, he was always ready for a fight. Explain the composition of the American Army. How large was the standing American Army at this point in time? Well, the uh, the American Army was was pretty small. I think uh, before before the war began, it was probably around um, six or eight thousand men. Uh, we have historically uh, had small armies in peacetime, and then once we go to war, and we historically have gone into wars unprepared to fight, so there's a great scramble to to bring in enlistments or to call for volunteers, and and that was certainly the case in 1846 when a call had to go out to, for volunteers to augment a very small regular army. So the army is about 8,000 strong nationwide. About how many troops does Taylor have with him on the Rio Grande? Taylor has about 4,000 initially, and and as soon as this uh, conflict, this uh, um, uh, attack, uh, this clash between Mexican and American troops occurred, that was in April of 46, as soon as that happens and President Polk uh, asks for and gets a declaration of war, then immediately the call for volunteers go out. Taylor's army will swell through the summer of 46 to, a, uh, to about 12,000. Right. 
let's talk about the Mexican army in comparison. How large is the Mexican army, and how many are, are facing I, Taylor across the river? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know how large the army was overall, um, but uh, across the Rio Grande, uh, he would have been facing a comparable force, probably a force that was a little bit larger than he, than his own. Um, and, and I think it was top heavy, if I remember from some of the writing, including your book, the whereas the American army had a pretty strong officer corps, but the bulk of the army was made up of the fighting the fighting privates, right? On the Mexican side, is a little bit different. It seemed a little bit top-heavy in the officer corps. Well, that, yeah, that's right. And in, in the Mexican army, uh, there were financial inducements for for being an officer and for, uh, and for getting a commission. And so... Uh, there was some prestige involved, and um, and 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 frankly, there was a considerable amount of corruption involved in some of these in a lot of these political appointments as well. Um, so the war starts off with a, a little bit of controversy. Uh, not everybody is for a war in Mexico. Uh, talk a little bit about what the opposition was saying and why they were against the the war to begin with. Well, the primary opposition to going to war with Mexico uh, was what what everyone knew from the outset, that this was going to probably end up as a land grab. Uh, Polk was an expansionist, and this is the age of manifest destiny where the mood of the country was for westward expansion. And, and so uh, on moral grounds, there were people who opposed to going to war with Mexico as a way of you know, potentially um, transferring Mexican land to the U.S. But the biggest issue in the controversy had to do with slavery because territorial expansion also would mean, uh, most likely, slavery expansion. And the abolitionist movement had really begun to heat up in the 1830s and 40s. And so there was strong opposition to slavery, and that's going to translate into strong opposition to this war. And to Polk, if I remember correctly as well. People recognize him as a Tennessean, as a slaveholder, and felt that he was sort of self-serving. He's a Southerner, uh, and yes, that's right. And Dr. Johnson, there were, there were two young colonels that served in the U.S. Army in this war that would become extremely famous in the next war, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. And how did these two guys feel about this war? Um, they both had uh, uh, sort of negative comments to make about it, and in fact, years later, when Grant wrote his memoirs, he said that uh, uh, that this was the most, I guess, the most immoral war uh, uh, in in American history. So, and 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 this was not that was not an unusual attitude among professional officers in the army. Many of them, when Phil Scott included. Uh, many of them were um, opposed to the motivations that took us into this conflict, and yet they're professional soldiers. A lot of these guys are West Point graduates. In fact, this is the first American war when West Point graduates play a significant role. They knew they had a duty uh, to the country and to the Army, and so they they went and fought, uh, even though they were not necessarily supporters of the war. So uh, just to, to recap, so Texas becomes part of the United States. James K. Polk sends a small military detachment to defend the southern border of Texas as America sees it on the mm-hmm. Rio Grande. 
It's not long before Mexico sends a small force to the Nueces River, uh, the southern border of Texas, as they see it, and it's just a matter of time before hostilities begin. Uh, I think it's a, a wonderful line. It's something of a gentleman's war. This is very 19th century, but when fighting started, General Mariano Arista uh, sent a message to Zachary Taylor, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, quote, "'Discussion is no part of the duty of soldiers. That is the work of diplomatic agents. Ours is to act.'" Hostilities have commenced, and I do not hesitate to assure your excellency that arms are hereafter to be used. How many Americans are killed on the border of, of uh, Texas in this first fight? Um, well, you, are, you, are you talking about uh, Resaca de la Palma? The, the, and, very first, uh, the very first, when hostilities first begin. Oh, that uh, was, uh, that was uh, Thornton's. Uh, right. Uh, there, there were... I don't remember the number killed, but just a most, handful. Most I mean, of, a... Right, a few dozen. Most of his detachment were actually captured, and uh, but that's the spark that ignited that's, this. That's thing. the thing that gives yes. James K. Polk the ability to go to yes. Congress and say to them, the American blood has been shed on the American soil, right. and the war is on. And, and he says in his uh, war message, a state of war exists. And there would be some pushback to that for people who are saying, look, the president is declaring that war already exists. We haven't declared war yet. Right, right. Uh, politics, sometimes it, yeah. it rarely changes over time. Right. Uh, we need to take our first break. Uh, uh, let's listen to our sponsors, and we'll be right back on History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today's subject is the U.S.-Mexican War, which was fought from 1846 to 1848. Our own James K. Polk was the Commander-in-Chief, uh, President of the United States at the time. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Barry Gidcombe uh, and Dr. Tim Johnson, who is Professor of History at Lipscomb University and a prolific author on the U.S.-Mexican War. So the war gets started on the southern border of Texas. Did James K. Polk have clear goals leading into the war? He had, uh, first of all, he, he wanted the Rio Grande to be recognized as the official boundary, but beyond that, yes, he did have goals, and in fact, he was already eyeing California. He had, in fact, the year before going to war, um, he had sent uh, James Slidell as a special emissary to, to Mexico City to try to negotiate a settlement of the boundary issue, but he had also um, given Slidell the authority to offer to purchase California, and this was back in uh, this was in, in late 1845 when Slidell received these instructions. So we know that Polk uh, clearly had land uh, acquisition as a primary motivation. Um. After the initial battles, it became clear to Polk and everyone else who was on the battlefield that volunteers were going to be needed, which you alluded to already, to fill the ranks. The Mexican army was outnumbering the American army, although the American army was holding their own. Uh, Zachary Taylor had some uh, pretty significant early success on the battlefield. Congress passed a war bill in 1846 to raise 50,000 volunteers. How did the various states respond, and specifically, how did Tennessee respond to that call for volunteers? Well, numerous states raised regiments. Um, 
a regiment being comprised of approximately a thousand uh, men with uh, usually 10 companies with about a hundred in each. Um, numerous states um, raised regiments, some of them multiple regiments, but in Tennessee, um, Tennessee during the course of the war had almost 5,500 uh, young men volunteer to fight and they would fill five infantry regiments and one mounted regiment. Um, Polk had supreme confidence in the citizen soldier, I think having seen firsthand how effective they had been in America's first two wars. Uh, certainly Andrew Jackson was sort of a hero to him, and, and Jackson certainly utilized the volunteer soldier very effectively during the War of 1812. Polk wrote, quote, Our alliance for protection and defense of the land must be mainly on our citizen soldier, who will be ready, as they ever have been ready in the past times, to rush with alacrity at the call of their country to their defense. For what reasons did the average Tennessean volunteer to fight in Mexico, of all places? It's a foreign land, America's first foreign war. What would induce a, a young Tennessean to head off? Yeah, well, there, there were very uh, pronounced reasons. First of all, let me, let me comment on, on what you just read from Polk. Polk also at one time said, showing his faith in the, in the citizen soldier, he said that our soldiers would fight and win even if they didn't have leaders or generals. And that was Polk's sort of backhanded slap at West Point and the professional soldier and Winfield Scott, whom he detested, and Zachary Taylor, whom he didn't really like. Um, uh, so, yes, he had great faith in, in the common man, in the uh, volunteer. Uh, why did Tennesseans volunteer to fight? Well, that, that is really the reason for the, the title of my last book, For Duty and Honor, because I, I kept running into references in letters that Tennessee volunteers were writing uh, in which they referred to their patriotism, their duty to serve, an obligation to country. And a lot of these young men in 1846 had fathers who had fought with Andrew Jackson in the War of 1812. And even some of them had grandfathers who had fought in the Revolutionary War. So, so to a lot of these guys, they saw this as a generational obligation. My father had served, now it's my turn, and now we're going to demonstrate that, that we, can, uh, we can rise to the nation's call just like the previous generation did. So there was, there was, real, there was really something to the idea that they saw it as, as uh, an obligation, as a duty, and they took honor and pride in serving, and they didn't want to embarrass their families or embarrass uh, their communities. Um, and, and one thing that um, really struck me, there was a young man who volunteered from Sumner County, and the parting advice that his father gave him when he left home to go join his company and to embark for Mexico, his father said, son, don't get shot in the back. And and, you know, that, that demonstrates that there, there's real honor here. You've got to serve, and you can't show yourself to be a slacker or a coward. Dr. Johnson, there's, there's a passage in your book where you uh, describe a flag ceremony at the Nashville Female Academy to, for, as a send-off for the first Tennessee volunteers. And the, uh, the senior girls in the Nashville uh, Female Academy had 
will present a flag to the Tennessee first, the first Tennessee. And there's a motto in that flag, and I, and I love the motto, and it and it really kind of gets to what you're uh, talking about here. The, the motto on the flag is from these young women, weeping in solitude for the fallen brave is better than the presence of men too timid to strike for their country. <laughs> yeah, who, who is not going to volunteer to fight after the young ladies uh, have said uh, that— uh, uh, you know that 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 you know who 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 wants a man who's too timid to fight? So yeah, you know you can imagine. I, I imagine the scene of these twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two-year-old young men, or eighteen or nineteen or whatever. I can imagine the scene. They're gathered there, and all of these young girls, teenagers, uh, there to cheer them on. And you know that uh, that that really. Uh, uh, and, and this is the way it always is at the beginning of a war with the parades and the flag waving and, and it's sort of a rah-rah event. But the reality of war has not set in yet. Really quickly before our next break, describe what northern Mexico is like for the American soldiers that are arriving on the battlefields there. They're, they're fighting in what kind of terrain? Well, it is, um, I guess a good way to describe it would be kind of semi-tropical. It, it's hot, it's humid, the, the geography is rather flat. Um, there are abundant uh, rattlesnakes and uh, tarantulas. There's one, uh, one instance where a, a, a soldier was bitten on the face uh, by a tarantula. Um, and so it was, very, it was a very inhospitable environment and, and that's going to result in a lot of illness too. Um, I remember one quote, and this is a, a paraphrase. I can't remember it exactly, but a soldier said, "If the if the land doesn't kill you, it's going to burn you, bite you, or sting you." And uh, yeah, I think yeah. that's a, a a great line, a wonderful line. Taylor has some success, however, despite being outnumbered in, in most of his battles, sometimes pretty dramatically. He's he's seeing some success on the battlefield. We're going to talk about that right after this break. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about one of the least known wars in American history, the U.S.-Mexican War. Uh, Dr. Johnson, Zachary Taylor is leading uh, a relatively small group of men against uh, a, a Mexican army that often outnumbers them. But he's finding success on the battlefield, despite these adverse conditions uh, in which they're fighting. What do you attribute his success to? A couple of things. First of all, I, I think the American Army had superior leaders. Um, many of many of the officers had gone to West Point. Um, uh, even in the volunteer units, uh, you, you, and, and that's kind of a mixed bag, uh, but even in the volunteer units, you do have some very competent uh, company commanders and uh, regimental commanders who sort of rise to the surface. So they have superior leadership, plus another factor on the other side of the ledger in the Mexican Army the uh, the soldiers were often conscripts or they were forced to serve. Uh, many of them did not serve in the army willingly, and therefore that obviously affects uh, fighting capability. Um, the navy would play a pretty key role in this war as well. What was what was the primary point of uh, or use of the navy during the U.S. Mexican War? The navy is going to blockade um, two or three of the important Mexican port cities, um, but because this was America's first expeditionary war, that is the first time that we sent um, troops to a, um, a foreign country, uh, the navy obviously plays an important role in transporting troops in, in uh, uh, and they're going to play a very significant role uh, in the second year of the war in 1847 when an American army landed at Veracruz. So they, they do have a role. This is sort of a, a, sort of a, a joint, uh, joint operations, Army-Navy. And, and that's a really important part. So this is a war that's being fought a couple of thousand miles from Washington, D.C. Battles are happening in Mexico. How long is the gap between what's happening on the battlefield and when James K. Polk finds ab out about it in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, it's going to take two or three weeks for information to go back and forth. So, you know, very often, uh, you know, the, the case is that the general on the ground is, uh, you know, having to make decisions on their own um, because it, 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 a month might transpire before they can actually send message to Washington and then get a reply back. I can't imagine the logistics <laughs> and thinking about how do you feed an army, how do you transport an army, how do you plan strategy when you have a gap of time of that length. That's a, an incredible thing to think about. But Polk managed it. He's kind of a micromanager. Uh, what is your assessment of Polk as a commander-in-chief during this war? I, I think that Polk was, uh, was a very competent general, um, he was kind of a no-nonsense, a no-frills kind of general. He was not particularly sophisticated in his approach. He knew the basics. Um, he knew how to handle an army, and his men, his men loved him. Um, and so he, he demonstrates that at the, uh, at the Battle of Monterey, where he fought a classical battle that involved a major flank attack. He won that battle. He demonstrates it uh, several months later. Um, at the Battle of Buena Vista, when he fought defensively, really the only time in this war, I think, that a, an American army fought defensively, and he held off far superior enemy numbers at, at Buena Vista. So, so overall, um, although Taylor 
as I say, and I want to emphasize, he was not uh, he was not terribly sophisticated in his approach, and he and 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 he his staff officers had to had to write his orders and write his correspondence because he wasn't very good at that, but he was still a very competent general. Um, besides Columbia and James. Uh, James K. Polk, who was commander-in-chief during that time. There was another prominent Colombian at the seat of war, uh, Gideon Pillow. Uh, who Who is he, and what role did he play? Gideon Pillow was a, a friend of the president's. Gideon Pillow was, uh, uh, had a, a rather large estate in Columbia, Tennessee, but he had land holdings across the state and into Arkansas. He was a very wealthy planter, slave owner, a very innovative farmer, and a lawyer, but he was able to get a commission as a general when the war began, and uh, he, he will go to Mexico. He will lead troops first as a brigadier general commanding volunteers. He's wounded um, twice in the war. Uh, he will get a promotion to major general, and he'll be put in command of, of regular troops in the second year of the war. And so uh, he was certainly a brave man, uh, but, you know, he had some interesting episodes and some sort of laughable episodes that would uh, result in uh, not such a great military reputation. <laughs> You're putting that kindly, I think. <laughs> um, but a good friend uh, to Polk, and I, I think right. from that perspective, he had really no military experience, yet he gets a general's commission during the war he becomes sort of the eyes and ears of James K. Polk, his friend, on, in, in the battlefields of Mexico. He, he did. That's exactly right. He, he had no military experience, although he fancied himself quite a uh, masterful military strategist. But uh, the, the most important thing that I think uh, President Polk saw in, in Pillow was, as you said, Pillow would serve as the president's eyes and ears. Because they were good friends— um, uh, and because President Polk didn't really trust or like either of his principal generals, Taylor or Scott, um, and Pillow will serve in both Taylor's army and Scott's army, but Pillow will keep the president informed about what's going on with these two Whig generals. Polk is a Democrat. Taylor uh, and Scott were both Whigs. And everyone knew that Scott had presidential aspirations. So there was a political concern on Polk's part to know what the generals were up to and what was going on in the Army. It becomes clear to Polk uh, as the fighting is happening in northern Mexico that Mexico, the government of Mexico, is not coming to the treaty table. It's going to take a larger effort. So you're alluding to, to General Scott. There's a shift in strategy whereby Polk decides to send a second army uh, landing at Veracruz to move inland toward Mexico City in an effort to get Mexico to the treaty table. Who is General Scott, and how does he compare to Taylor? Winfield Scott was from Virginia. He had been in the Army uh, since about 1808, had, had become the youngest general in the Army in 1814 at the end of the War of 1812. Scott was 27 years old when he was promoted to general. So Scott was already a national hero. He was well known. Uh, he was <clears throat> he did a lot to bring uh, professionalism to the United States Army. Although he himself was not a West Point graduate, he loved the academy. He spent a lot of time at West Point, but he was also extremely pompous, 
arrogant. Uh, he had a difficult personality, and he had he he sort of crossed swords with uh, with President Polk at the outset of the war, and that would cost him cost him uh, dearly. Scott wanted to uh, to take field command, but. Uh, uh, he expressed the attitude that when he went to Mexico, he was afraid that he would have an enemy in his front and in his rear. That was Scott's, Scott alluding to the fact that the administration would be working a, at odds with him once he got to Mexico. And the president didn't take too kindly to that insult. And so President Polk said, well, that's okay. You, you're going to stay here in Washington. You sit behind your desk, and we will uh, funnel troops and, and rely on Zachary Taylor. That was in the first year of the war. And then, of course, by, by the time Polk decides on this new strategy, which you alluded to, Polk did turn to General Scott and say, okay, you take field command now. I think, if I remember, he actually tried to circumvent Scott, who was general-in-chief at the time. So he was the top guy in the military. Polk actually tried to appoint a lieutenant general C to, to get above Taylor's rank uh, and appoint a, another politician, Thomas Hart Benton, who is a Democrat. Uh, and a friend of Polk, but it, it sort of backfired That's right. on him. That's right. Uh, uh, there, no one had held the the rank of lieutenant general since George Washington. <laughs> Polk tried to revive that to do exactly what you said, to circumvent or to sort of do an end run around Scott. And, you know, Polk early in the war apologized to fellow Democrats for the makeup of the officer corps because the officer corps was sort of top-heavy with Whigs. There were right. political implications there. So the very first amphibious assault in American history happens with Scott and his army landing at Veracruz, Mexico, and they follow a path that had really been followed by Cortez 300 years earlier on a path to Mexico City. We're going to talk about that. We're going to wind up the war and talk about uh, um, we're going to, going to talk about uh, living history and how history uh, continues on into today. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the U.S.-Mexican War, which was fought during James K. Polk's presidency. Uh, a two-pronged attack. Zachary Taylor fights in northern Mexico. Uh, a second prong under Winfield Scott lands at Veracruz. They're moving inland, uh, and f the Mexican army is there to stop them from getting to Mexico City. How does this campaign evolve? Well, it begins in March when Scott lands about 10,000 men uh, on Collado Beach, just south of Veracruz, the largest amphibious invasion in American military history prior to D-Day. Uh, there were no casualties because the landing was unopposed. Um, Scott will besiege Veracruz. He captured the city, and then he began his march inland in April 1847. And that begins a six-month military campaign that will involve in all about uh, about a half a dozen major battles and it will culminate with the capture of Mexico City in September 1847 and it was uh, I I've often called this uh, uh, the, the most brilliant military campaign that you've never heard of the Mexico City campaign right uh, I think uh, Scott got high marks from of all people, the Duke of Wellington has called him the greatest general of the age as a result of the Mexico City campaign. He did. Uh, late in the campaign, and, and Scott will have a chronic problem of a manpower shortage because um, he, he's going he's gonna to go into battle with, um, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 men going up against 
Mexican army under Santa Ana that had maybe 15,000 or more. And late in the campaign, Scott drew in his garrisons, cut off his line of communication back to the coast, uh, much the way William Tecumseh Sherman did in Georgia in uh, 1864 in his March to the Sea. And uh, the Duke of Wellington, when he learned that Scott had done that, he supposedly said, Scott is doomed. He, he cannot make it to Mexico City, and he can't get back to the coast now. And then a few weeks later, when Scott actually captured Mexico City, the Duke of Wellington said he is the greatest living soldier. <laughs> the Mexican War, for, for being a forgotten war, arguably, is one of the most deadly in American history. I think 110 in every 1,000 soldiers died. In comparison, during the Civil War, the death rate was about 65 men per 1,000 engaged. While 1,548 officers and men died of wounds received in battle during the Mexican War, nearly 11,000 died of illness contracted during their time in service. Nearly 10,000 more returned home incapacitated from the effects of the war, either from wounds or sickness. So the Mexican War is, is a terribly deadly war. It, it was, and disease was the real killer. Uh, and this was, this was historically the case prior to the 20th century that disease typically killed more soldiers than combat but it but it's markedly true in Mexico because you have um, you, you have thousands of young American uh, men going to uh, a completely different environment and yellow fever dysentery measles these were some of the real killers in Mexico right I think one of the saddest most ironic stories related to death in the Mexican War uh, is around Henry Clay Jr. Now, we all remember that James K. Polk's arch nemesis in politics was Henry Clay. Polk defeated Clay in the election of 1844. His son had been a West Point graduate, and he went to Mexico, as as he thought his duty was. Uh, tell us the story of Henry Clay Jr. Well, uh, I, I should note, too, that his father, Henry Clay, the famous uh, politician from Kentucky, Henry Clay was opposed to the war. And Henry Clay had come out against the annexation of Texas when he ran for president in 44, and that had proved to be the, the impetus for, for sort of igniting the war. But his son um, did go to Mexico, fought valiantly at uh, the Battle of Buena Vista, which is actually uh, where he was killed. He was killed in February 1847, still in Zachary Taylor's army, uh, fighting at Buena Vista. And uh, Henry Clay, of course, would be, as an opponent to the war, would be really devastated by the loss of his son. Uh, I think he writes, I derive some consolation from knowing that he died where he would have chosen, and where, if I must lose him, I should have preferred, on the battlefield in the service of his country. Uh, But I think terrible irony and a bitter pill, an especially bitter pill to swallow for Henry Clay. Yes, and uh, Robert Remedy talks about this in his biography of Clay and, and all the, the uh, notes of, of sympathy and, uh, that went out to Clay in the aftermath of losing his, his namesake son. And Robert Remedy in, includes in that one little sentence that says, Pope sent nothing. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, we like to talk about the continuity of history on history's hook. 
a number of battles, many battles are fought in Mexico. One of them was the Battle of Monterey uh, in Mexico. A few years ago, human remains were uncovered in Monterey, Mexico, on the site of the battle that took place there in 1846. Tell us about the story of the remains. Monterey is in northern Mexico, and this is the battle uh, in which the 1st Tennessee Volunteer Regiment actually played a prominent role in capturing a Mexican fort, La Teneria, is what the fort was called, on the northeast corner of the city, uh, the 1st Tennessee and the 1st Mississippi, Jefferson Davis's regiment, uh, together captured that fort. Well, in some construction projects in the early 20th century, on several occasions, skeletal remains were unearthed uh, by bulldozers, uh, and uh, they they did excavations. They they determined very quickly because of U.S. coins and military buttons, they knew right away that this had to be American soldiers from the Battle of Monterey, and because those bones were found in and around the footprint or the exact location where uh, La Teneria Fort had once stood, um, the the supposition from the very beginning was, hey, the, these could be Tennesseans. I mean, 27 Tennesseans were killed at the Battle of Monterey, many of them right in this area. And so when the bones were found, um, uh, a lot of people, and especially Tennesseans, became involved in an effort to repatriate those bones back to U.S. soil. And it took several years, but on the 170th anniversary of the battle in September 2016, those skeletal remains did return to the United States. Where are they now? They are still where they, they came back to Dover, Delaware, Dover Air Force Base, uh, the military mortuary there. They're still in Dover. The military uh, has been very kind to hold those skeletal remains. There has been a team of scientists from MTSU uh, led by Hugh Berriman, who is a forensic anthropologist, and they have gone periodically to Dover to to uh, to do testing on bones and enamel from teeth. Uh, and the effort, the main effort, is to try to see if we can identify these remains. and And as we, as it stands right now, the army, the ball is in the army's court, and they are currently tasked with. Um, getting some DNA samples from some living descendants that we have found from some of these Tennesseans who died at Monterey. An amazing story. It is. Uh, bringing science to bear after all of this time. Um, Dr. Johnson, th thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Where can folks find your books? They can go to um, th this latest book, uh, utpress.org. The name of the book is For Duty and Honor, Tennessee's Mexican War Experience, or they can go to Amazon.com. Uh, and, and I've done a couple of books with the University Press of Kansas, so you can go to the Kansas website as well. One last question, an angle that I wanted to touch on. What is the legacy of the Mexican War for Mexico? How did, how did that change their history? There is... There was then, and there remains today, considerable bitterness because of the feeling that, uh, that basically the southwest portion of the United States is stolen land, and that's why you sometimes will hear the phrase, I didn't cross the border, the border crossed me. Uh, and so there remains some, 
you know, some, some hard feelings about how all of that transpired. I hope you'll come back and join us again uh, in, in the near future, Dr. Johnson. We have a lot more I think we can cover with this. We're going to wrap yeah. up the show with uh, a quote, this one from James K. Polk. Well may the boldest fear and the wisest tremble when incurring responsibilities on which may depend our country's peace and prosperity, and in some degree, the hopes and happiness of the whole human family. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Marty Verhoff, our engineer, Dr. Barry Gidcombe from Columbia State, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. <laughs>